a lot of things to stand in amazement of, um, namely and foremost, Jesus. But you may stand in amazement to know that I pulled off dinner this week without my wife. Uh, yeah. I know. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Daddy was in charge of dinner, and oh yeah, <laughs> it's always going to be a good time. But you know, um, as I'm, I'm putting things together, Mommy is out with some ladies of her Bible study celebrating the end of their study, and um, as I'm, I'm putting things together, I'm, I'm often not very good at knowing portions, and so I cooked a ridiculous amount of broccoli, and um, there's just like tons of broccoli, and so as I'm making the plates, I'm like, what am I going to do with this broccoli? Like, you don't reheat broccoli, do you? That just sounds awful, so we got to get through this. Um, and so as I'm making their plates, I'm just like heaping it up because I have this brilliant idea. Like they don't want to eat broccoli, but I'm thinking, how do I get them to eat this? So I heap it up on the plate so that when they would like inevitably start to decry this, like, no, I could incrementally take a little bit off. And they're like, okay, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll relent a little. I'll take this off. I'll take this off. And, and by the time that they feel like I got most of it off my plate, I'm like, that's exactly where I wanted you. <laughs> so... You can think you won, but man, uh, here, here's the question though. How do you get someone to do something that you want them to do, but they don't necessarily want to do? Um, how, what, what actually leads to effectual behavioral change? If you want someone to stop something, you want to change the behavior, what leads to real change there? Like this idea of behavior modification, if we could just change the behavior, what leads to lasting authentic change? And that's the question, and that's actually where Paul is taking us as we continue through the, the letter to the church in Ephesus that we call Ephesians. Um, we've made it to chapter 4, and so as we come to chapter 4, read with me what he says in the first verse. Paul speaking here, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. Therefore is a connecting word. Um, so we must ask, um, if therefore means because of all of this, then what is he saying prior to this? It's all of chapters one through three. That he has unpacked the beauty of the gospel that we have been called to such lofty heights. We have been called forgiven, chosen, adopted, blameless, holy, pure, all these beautiful things that we're, we're his sons and daughters. God has brought us into the family and he has done that by grace through faith. That at his expense, the life of the Son of God, Jesus laid down his life, eternal Son, has come, taken on humanity, lived a sinless life. He fulfilled the law that we could not, and the law that we used to divide. He says, I've brought it to nothing because he fulfilled it. And so now, there's a new man, there's a new creation. And that creation has been brought about not by our obedience to the law, but by his imputed righteousness that when he died on the cross, he died the death that you and I deserve. He died in our place because he loves us and he saw it to be a joy to do so. And so in that moment, he took our sin on himself. It was nailed to a cross, all of our condemnation. The very wrath of God was poured out on God so that we would not have to face that. All who put their trust in him. This faith, the object of our faith being Christ who died but then was raised back to newness of life and says, follow me into everlasting life. And so we turn from our sin, we confess him to be Lord and we follow him, putting our trust in him for salvation. Not what we could do. We can't brag about it. We can only boast in the Lord because even the good things that he's called us to do, he prepared them in advance, they're really his and we just get to walk in them. And so it's grace from start to finish. 
this beautiful good news, this gospel. Gospel means good news, this good news. So because of this is what he's saying. Therefore means because of the gospel, because of everything I've said and how there should no longer be this division of Gentile and Jew because there's a new man. The gospel, God loves you. He has saved you because of that. Now he makes a transition. Because of that, he shifts. And so we can get to some technical terms here, but I think it's important, it helps us to have categories for how to think of this stuff. Because he's shifting in this book, he's went from um, what on one hand we could call orthodoxy and now orthopraxy. Um, orthodoxy means right belief. That we believe the right things. It's orthodox. Um, this dox is actually related to the word we get doctrine from. And so it's our right belief or conviction about something, but then it gets into orthopraxy, Praxi related to our word practice, the right practice. And so how does right belief relate to right practice? Or we could talk about this in terms of the indicatives and the imperatives. The indicatives are the things that are indicatively true. This is positionally true of you, that you are in Christ. He has secured your salvation, not by anything you have done, but what he has done for you. You are saved by grace through faith. And now, because that is true, the indicatives are true. Now there are imperatives. There are things that you should live out because of that reality. And Paul is pulling these together, making this transition to say, because of all this, because of the gospel, now let me tell you some things that ought to be true because that is true. And the way that you live your life. So this shift is taking place. And this now helps us to understand this is the second time in the letter he calls himself a prisoner of the Lord. And in that transition, we see how that is actually beautiful. Now we understand this is why you're a prisoner of the Lord because you know what the Lord has done for you. And how could you not now serve him with utter and total obedience? And yet, with the tension of we are still broken sinners. And so Paul says, this is who I am. This is why I'm bound to obey and exalt Christ. He knows what Christ has done for him. And here's the thing, as we talk about this transition, you need to know, and I need to know, there's never once a story recorded in the scriptures where someone comes to saving faith and they just carry on with life. If you look at your life, and it is no different because you are a follower of Jesus than if you are not a follower of Jesus, I don't know that you have met Jesus. And that does not mean that we attain perfection. But there should be a longing to obey him, to exalt him. There should be some desire in you to want to do what is right because it brings him glory. Because of what he has done, it should bring about this desire for obedience. And that, again, does not mean that we're always there. I know I'm not. And in the words of John the Apostle, as you read his epistles, he, he talks a lot about us being children of the light. And children of the light don't walk in darkness. But they do stumble in it. But we don't walk in it. We don't live there. But we do stumble in it sometimes. In that same letter, he says, if anyone says he's without sin, if anyone says he is without sin, he's a liar. And so we should be honest about our shortcomings and so forth. But do we move forward? And Paul's saying here now, we can live worthy of the calling we've received. How? How can we possibly live worthy of the calling we have received? How could I earn this calling I've received? Because that's what my mind on first glance, wants to do with this. He says, live worthy of the calling I've received. And I'm like, oh goodness, like, wait, wait, wait. This is a salvation I could never earn. But now you're saying, live in a, in a manner that's worthy of that. That sounds to me like I need to earn it. That's not what he's saying here. 
What he's saying here is, is better to think of it, um, and, and the, there's, a, there's a sense of this that's not captured quite um, explicitly in the, in the English, but in the Greek, there's this idea of scales being weighed and balanced. Saying there should be a balance here. He's saying because of the reality, again, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, indicatives and imperative, because of what is true, because of the gospel, that you could not earn salvation, but because he has saved you, his grace is with you. Now, there ought to be an outflow, an outworking of that grace in your life. So live in light of the gospel. That is how you live a life worthy of the calling you've received, is to live out what the gospel has done for you. To live in light of that. We are in this position purely by grace, but now that grace empowers us to walk with our Lord. So verse 2, he continues on. He says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So what's it look like now? To live in light of the gospel? To live in a, in a, in a manner that's worthy of the calling we've received? So to, to hold the scales and say, because the gospel is true, I must now live in light of it. And it's going to look like this. What does it look like? It says, you're going you're to do this. You can walk in humility, with gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Now this is very similar to what he, um, last year we went through Galatians. But he says the fruit of the Spirit. The, the Spirit is the one who's doing this, who's, who's cultivating this life and producing this fruit in you. And the fruit often looks like this. And he summarizes here to say, humility and gentleness, patience. Humility means lowering oneself. Say, so I, could, I could be up here, but I'll come in under here, under you. It's to humble, to lower yourself. Or gentleness. When someone is gentle, it means that they're not exercising the strength that they're capable of. You may be capable of something that would be fierce and strong, but instead, you choose to be gentle. Or maybe patience. To move slowly. Well, you don't have to, but you want to match someone else's pace. To slow down and match someone else's pace. But the thing about all these humility and gentleness and patience is they require conscious effort and decision on our part. You, you decide that I'm going to be humble. I'm going to put someone else ahead of myself. I decide I want to be gentle when I could come in with a fist decide to slow down when I could just rush right through. You've got to decide. And Paul's saying this is what it looks like to live in light of the gospel. Consciously decide to lower yourself, to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient. How can we do that? <laughs> Summed up, he said, bear with one another in love. A love gets the last word, love. These things are needed though, because um, if we take a step back and say, okay, live in light of the gospel, and he's speaking to a church, and, and he's already made such an emphasis on unity, and speaking to a church, he now says, live, live in, a, in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. And it looks like this, humility, gentleness, and patience. When do you need humility? When there's a tension of someone else being over you or there's a tension inside of you that wants to elevate yourself over someone else? When do you need patience? When you're frustrated and you want to go faster. 
but something's slowing you down. Something got in the way. Something came up. When do you need gentleness? When there's this, this response being evoked from you that you want to, to firmly come back at it. And all of this points to this tension that he's saying, look, hey, the gospel is you've been saved by grace through faith, but it's not done yet. There's still a mess here. There's still brokenness. If there's still brokenness, then we still need these things. If we didn't have brokenness, we wouldn't need these things. And so because there is still sin, because there is still brokenness, we need these things. And so we have to ask, what are the expectations we have? If, if we're going to be humble and gentle and patient, uh, we need to have the correct expectations. Like, what do we expect out of things? If our expectations are not appropriate for the object in view, then you can guarantee that you're going to get way more frustrated than you ought to be. And it's going to be that much harder to be humble and gentle and patient if you can't rightly see what you're looking at. So you can look at this, and our children, our spouse, our friends, our coworkers, our church even, that if you elevate something to the place of God and expect utter, just beautiful performance, never fail, then you know what's coming your way, right? Disappointment and hurt. And so we have to have a right view of the things that we're looking at and be honest about the fact that there's brokenness. And so he's calling us to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient in light of that. And why? Because we bear with one another in love. And this is tied back to his letter to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous passage about love. You know, that kind of sums up towards the end. He says, love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. This is what love does. And so if love hopes all things, believes all things, and endures all things, again, it points to the tension that it's not always such. And so we decide to do these things. But to be able to do that, what he's saying here, as he continues on, after, after calling to this, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit. I mean, the Spirit has brought about this existing unity. We did not bring it about. The Spirit of God brought it about. And he's saying, hey, don't break what was created. This is your part. Just don't break it. Just don't break it. This existing unity. He's, he's saying, don't break it. And to do that, we don't look to the brokenness. We look to what unites us. And it's the Spirit of God. God himself unites us. We have to look to him. And so if we want to be gentle and humble and patient, then we can't fixate on ourselves and the others around us. We have to fixate on God. It's a common theme throughout the scriptures. Fix your eyes on things that are above, not things that are below. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's everything must have God at the center or we won't be able to live this out. In fact, the gospel, remember, all of this should be true because this is true. God is at the center of the gospel, not us. We have to keep him at the center. And so we keep this existing unity the Spirit has brought. The Spirit unites us because Christ has removed the division. So you remember, again, in this context, in this letter, that there's this division between Jews and Gentiles. And he's saying, the wall of hostility has been brought to nothing. God has done this. And so live in that unity. Don't break what God has created when he made a new man. And he continues on, verse 4. It says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. When you're reading scripture 
and a word becomes repetitive. That's telling you something. Focus in on it. What is it saying? One, one, one. There's this emphasis on unity. One, one, one. It's one body. The one new man, the one church. One spirit. There's one God who quickens our dead hearts, who gives us faith and sight and seals us with the promise of redemption. There is one hope. It is the gospel. There is one Lord who is Jesus Christ. There's one faith. That is, there's just one object of our faith. It is Christ. There's one baptism. There's one act in which we were all united with Christ in his death and resurrection as baptism signifies. One God and Father. That one God and Father who is, he says, above all He is through all and he is in all. He is above all and that he is transcendent and he is sovereign over everything. There is nothing outside of his control. He's above it all. He's transcendent. He's not stuck and contingent on anything in creation. He's above it all. And yet that God who is transcendent is also through all. Now, the beauty of the God who is transcendent is also eminent. He works through us, active in his creation, while he is still transcendent over it all. What a God. He's also in all. The personal relationship we have, the person of God, in that deep relational being that he is existing in the Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity past and for all time to come. That he has always been communal and he's inviting us into this relationship. That he's relational and now he is in all, intimately dwelling in the believers. What a God. Saying, be united. And then verse 7, he continues. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, and I was quoting the Old Testament, namely this is Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he took captives captive. He gave gifts to people. What But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. So Paul is utilizing Psalm 68, and I want to be honest with you and up front that this is very confusing for everyone. Um, Any any serious student of the Bible will say, we don't fully know. Um, It seems clear he is citing Psalm 68, but he changes the language a little bit. And there's different theories on why. There's different ways to interpret that. I want to share, again, I may be wrong, but the one that I think seems most reasonable, reasonable and plausible is that he's summarizing the story of Psalm 68 and then utilizing the language of it to make application here. Um, and so as he does that, we can see Christ did descend. Uh, this is the incarnation that Christ left the throne of glory, emptied himself and became man. He descended, he came to this earth and then he lived a sinless life and then he was killed. He was murdered to atone for our sins. He was buried, but then he rose again. And so this Christ who descended also rose again victorious over death and hell. He freed us in his victory and he literally ascended back to the throne where he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he has given us gifts. At Pentecost, the Spirit of God came down and Jesus had told his disciples, stay tight, wait, the helper is coming. And the Spirit comes and gives gifts to his people. As Christ sent them, and so Christ has given us these gifts. And these gifts have been given now to us. So that like in verse 6 that says the Father is in all. Now verse 10, again, the Trinity, this beautiful paradox of one God and three persons. 
and how you can't easily separate them out sometimes. Now in verse 10, it says, Christ ascended to fill all things. That God the Father is in all things, but now Christ has ascended to fill all things. He has entered into a relationship with all of creation as sovereign over it all. There's nothing that Christ is not sovereign over. And so now he continues with that idea. These gifts have been given and he, verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. I'm convinced that this is a continued reference in context to the gifts. And so it's easy to read these things and, and our minds like to go to offices as in positions. Like, oh, well, there's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. We, we like to think of, oh, Kevin is a pastor, a teacher. That's not what he's saying here, I don't think. Like what he's, he's saying gifts were given. And so these are actual gifts that have been given to the people of God. Not to all, but to some. Some of these gifts have been given. Some, the apostles. And so this would not be the formal, so to speak, capital A apostle, like Paul was, but meaning the gift, meaning apostle is a sent one with the ability to establish churches in unreached areas as Christ's messengers. And there are people who are not the capital A, so to speak, apostles, who are called apostles in the New Testament. So I think this is a reference to the gift of that, these individuals who have that and are able to go do this. And again, in context, what is this to do? He says it right there to build up the body of Christ. It's to, to bring about unity and growth. Uh, prophets, those gifted with the ability to disclose mysteries and revelations from God. Sometimes it is predictive, as we often think of prophets foretelling the future. That happens sometimes, but often it's messages for the purpose of edification, comfort, and encouragement. That God would speak through someone in a way to encourage, to build up someone. There's evangelists, as one who continually speaks the message of Christ's salvation, and typically you'll see great fruit with that. Pastors, um, they're, they're, again, that's the one culturally that we hear the most of, the office of like Pastor Kevin. You get up there and you preach to us every week. You do things like that. But there's another sense of pastor that is this verb, which means to actively shepherd people, to care for them, to encourage them, to exhort and to administer activities of a church body. Or teachers, those with the ability to provide instruction and doctrine and application in daily life. I see these gifts have been given, but what are they given for? Explicitly, the building up of the church, the whole body. And this is where attention comes in again culturally, but I think it's always been there. So often, we have people who seem to have much more visible gifts, and they become elevated. And sometimes the danger is the, the gifting starts to build up the individual who possesses the gift as opposed to the body. The gifts were given for the sake of the body. Not so an individual would have a platform to be elevated above everyone else. So if you thought highly of or anything like that. But for the whole body to be united and to be built up. Some equip and some execute. Equip the saints for works of service. So you have some of these, and this is why this is not an exhaustive list, but he's saying there are some gifts that are given that primarily work in this capacity. They're going to equip others to do the works of ministry. And so in this church, beloved church, we have categories. You're either equipping others or you're being equipped to go minister to others. That's every one of us. And so what is your gifting is it to equip others or is it to go do what you were equipped to do? And we all are active in this. Every one of us is called to be in this. We're all united. We're all active in the goal, which is to build the body up. 
build the body up. But what does that look like? Look at verse 13 as he continues. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. Who's included in the goal? All. Every single saint is included. It's not just one of us or a few of us. It's our whole church. Paul says, um, I believe this is in Colossians, that, that he's, he's aiming to present everyone fully mature in Christ. And what a beautiful goal for all of us to have, not just me, but for all of us to be fully mature in Christ. Every single saint involved. It looks like unity in the faith, knowledge of Christ, being filled with the fullness of Christ. And then he pulls in children. They're like, oh, let's give the kids a hard time. But he's, he's, not, he's not knocking children. But he's pointing to the, the natural reality that children lack understanding and experience that would allow for easy confusion and influence. And so, like being tossed to and fro by waves, have you ever taken your child out to the beach on the Atlantic side? The waves are crashing in. You better hold on tight. You see the fear in their eyes. Hold me, Daddy. This massive wave comes, and if you're not holding on, what happens? Blah, 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 blah. Taken away. They're knocked to and fro by every wave. What is the wave? Blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. Saying, like little children get knocked around by the waves. Now, let's not be like that. Let's not be like that. In contrast, let's be stable, let's be consistent. Let's have discernment and commitment to the truth. So the waves are still going to come in. But as you grow, you learn how to posture right, to take the force of that wave and continue to face it, and not be knocked to and fro, but instead to stand your ground. And what is true? Ligonier and Lifeway, every two years, releases a new state of theology where they survey thousands and thousands of Americans across the nation. And they release these things, and I think it's, it's, it's really heartbreaking, but it's telling of culturally where we're at. When we think of, of us being like children tossed around to and fro by every wind of, of teaching and human cunning and deceit. Uh, let me share some of the major findings. The majority of U.S. adults believe that God learns and adapts or changes. And this is called process theology. Um, it's tied greatly into New Age mysticism, which is way more rampant than any of us want to give it credit for. But this idea that God is responding in real time to things because he didn't know. And so he's not sure what decision you're going to make, and he'll respond based on that. Or he's, he's figuring things out as the world continues on. We so want to make God like us. What a weird thing that in the fall, we want to be like God, and now we want God to be like us. But the majority of U.S. adults think that God learns and adapts or changes when Scripture tells us things like, I do not change, and therefore you are not consumed, Jacob. There's no shift or shadow of change in him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He does not change. We can only go to sleep at night because he does not change. You don't have to wonder if he's still going to love you tomorrow and save you from damnation because he does not change. He loves you. 
He doesn't change. The overwhelming majority of, of U.S. adults believe that humans are born innocent. Emotionally, oh, yeah. We don't want to think of these babies as being sinful, evil people. Have you spent five minutes with one of them? <laughs> I love them, but there's no denying it. You don't have to teach these kids to be selfish. You do not have to be taught how to lie. It's in us. David said, in iniquity I was brought forth. In my mother's womb I was conceived in sin. That we have this sin, this curse has been imputed to us. It is genetic. Yes, you are born this way, so to speak. It is in us. Well, praise be to God that he doesn't leave us there. The majority of U.S. Americans view the Bible as a collection of helpful ancient myths, but not literally true. It's the very word of God. It's breathed out by God. You can trust it. It's not just some helpful ancient myths. It's God's very word, his very revelation to us. You get this one? The majority of evangelicals, and they're defining evangelicals as those who would affirm an orthodox view of what the gospel is. Now hear this. The majority of evangelicals believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. Those who would say they're trusting Christ alone for salvation, the Christ who said, there is no way to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. The, if God is God, does he not have every right to say, it cost me my life. Yes, this is the way. And church, if we're going to slip into thinking that all religions are really leading to the same God and he accepts all of them, you know what the best thing you can do is? Stop preaching the gospel. Because they might reject it. Let them go with whatever they want to believe. And that's absurd. That's insane. We have a righteous God who is rightly jealous. He alone deserves all of our affection, all of our adoration, all of our worship. Don't be tossed to and fro. Let's grow. That's what he says in verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. All parts of the body need to grow. Otherwise, it gets weird. Yeah? Paul uses this in multiple letters, this, this image of, of the body of Christ. That there's, like, we as a church have body parts. Christ is the head. But then there's a hand, and there's a foot, and there's a knee. There's all these different parts of the body. You start chopping them off, and we're no longer fully functional. <laughs> we need everybody. And everybody has a part to play. We all need to grow together because if one hand gets used all the time and the other hand never gets used, you know what happens to the hand that never gets used? Atrophy. It starts to waste away. Your mind will actually forget how to use that. This is what physical therapy is largely doing with many things. It's trying to help the brain reconnect and make use of different things. But that hand that gets used all the time, oh, it's going to get beefy. But you know what happens after a while? It's going to be overextended. It's going to be overworked. It's going to get hurt. 
All of us need to grow. Each part working properly is essential. I sat in a home group leaders training a couple months back, and it struck me as I asked who in the room has been discipled, that only a couple people raised their hand. Only a couple people in some of the, the, the most pivotal leadership of our church could say that they've had a relationship in their life where they knew that they were intentionally being discipled by another person. Beyond just, oh, there's a pastor who preaches and disciples all of us weekly, or my church sends out resources, but there is someone who actively is looking out for me and my faith, who is seeking my growth, who cares about my intimacy with the Lord. It's rare in our day. So I'd ask you, have you been discipled? Are you being discipled? And then I'll ask further, are you discipling anyone else? If the answer to any of these is no, then you look and say, who around me can I trust and know that they're further along and I can learn from them and enter into that kind of relationship with them? Ask them, hey, would you just, maybe in, in today's words, mentor me? Would you just help me grow in the faith? I so admire your faith. It's evident. I just want to know, will you help me learn to read scriptures? Pray with me. Help me to know what it is to follow Christ. And then look around again. This is not a condemning, judgmental thing. This is, this is actually what we are called to, is assess. Who could I help? Who do I know I'm actually further along than? And how can I invite them in? I say, I'd love to invest in you. Are you willing? Ask if every part working properly is essential. What is your part? What is your part in beloved church? What gifts has God given you so that you can work for the unity of the body and the building up of the body? What can you do? What is your part? And here's one thing that is certainly part of your part is to love. I said it right there in the text. Built up in love. Love each other. Love each other because of how connected we are to Christ and to each other as his body. Love is essential. It is being built up in love. And the beauty of this, I so hope that it's not lost on you. The beauty of a local church, to be part of the bride of Christ. The church, uh, the fellowship of saints is not just a nice offering. It's not just like, man, if, if they keep it, enjoyable enough, if it's comfortable enough, if it's convenient enough, then yeah, I'll participate. I'll come on Sundays. I know that's what they want. Or I'll go to a home group. Or I'll be in one of those silly discipling partnership things that they always talk about. Like, If you don't see that it's not just an offering, it is a command of God to be active and part of the bride of Christ. If you don't see that God did not just save a person, he saved a people, and he called you to be in this people, I was saying, be united, grow together. It's not going to work to be off in isolation. You need each other. Be part of this because there's different gifts given to each of us. So again, like that hand, that one's going to get really strong and then it's going to get really hurt. And that one's just going to fade out. We all need each other. Come together. Love is essential. It's not an offering, it's a command. It's imperative for your soul, believer. And so see the beauty of it. That beauty is present because Christ is making her beautiful. Do you know that? The church is not beautiful because of great marketing or our appearance or our 
efforts in serving people or anything like that. That is not what makes us beautiful. What makes us beautiful is Christ. We're jumping ahead in the letter, but he says, like his bride, he is presenting us to himself, holy and splendor, without blemish. He is in charge of making us beautiful. We are not. He is making us beautiful. As he is making us beautiful, we, again, going back, we need to walk in humility and realize we are not making ourselves beautiful. He is making us beautiful. Keep him at the center. One of the biggest threats I see to community, and this is church, but it's everything, is self-righteousness. I struggle so much with wanting to be right. I want to be right, and I want other people to know that I'm right so much. And do you know when the most hell-like moments of my life are? When I'm trying to be right and trying to make sure people know I'm right. And here's the thing. Hear me clearly. Hell is real. There's a real place where God's judgment will be poured out on people who have rejected him. We reject God when we rely on our own righteousness. Those who are in heaven are in heaven by grace through faith. Those who are with God for all of eternity are there not because of their own righteousness. It's actually in the humbling of ourselves and confessing to be sinners and trusting him and his righteousness to be given to us so it is his righteousness, not my righteousness. In contrast, those in hell are those who are full of self-righteousness to say, I will make myself right. Or if I have no concern for morality or anything else, just I'm right. And so if that is what hell is full of, is self-righteousness, again, it is real. But you know a surefire way to experience hell on earth? Self-righteousness. What a hell to live in a place where you feel like you constantly have to make yourself right. Been there, and I still struggle with it a lot. But that's not what He has called us to. He's called us to humility, to lower ourselves, to gentleness, to patience, to see that the beauty of this church is not in the performance of any one of us. The beauty is in the performance of Christ, who is superior in every way who's perfect in every way. He is making us beautiful. As we come back, this is how we live, worthy of the calling we received, humility, gentleness, and patience, because they think of Christ. What humility? Co-eternal, co-equal with the Father and Spirit, from eternity past, and he set aside glory to enter in, in the incarnation, that he would step into the mess of his own creation, become like his own creation, so that his own creation could kill the creator. That is humility. Humble and obedient to the point of death. But then in that humility, to save us when he has all power. Every ounce of power is his. And we rebel against him. And instead of striking down when he had every right to, and gentleness, he stepped in and said, this is my heart. I love you. And patience, the God who is living outside of time would say, I'll step into time. What patience. 
to step into this, to love us, to save us, to bring us back to himself. This is our God. He loves us. And he says, stop being obsessed with your own self-righteousness and see, I've given you my righteousness. We keep that in focus. And then what a beautiful thing the church is. He's making us beautiful. He is doing it. I love this church. It is a mess. And I contribute a lot to that mess. But it is beautiful because he is making it beautiful and we're not to be tossed around like children. But we are to come to God like children in the sense that we should come with this deep trust and wonder and excitement, this love for him. I, I love so much that my son, when he talks to me about the church, he knows how much I love the ocean. And he knows that I would just love to live in the Keys. And he, like, I don't, I've lost count of the times that he's come to me and, and you know, hypothetical dreams of an eight-year-old. And this goes years now, but because you're like, Daddy, what if we woke up and we had a house in the Keys? Or Daddy, what if, what if one day somebody rich came and they bought us a yacht and we could live in the Keys? Like, all these little things where he dreams up or somehow we always end up in the Keys. But you know what he says every time? He says, and beloved came with us. You know how bad I want my eight-year-old son to still think that when he's 16? That I don't want to go anywhere without you. Because I love you. And you're beautiful because Christ is making you beautiful. And it's true for me too. Because I'm pretty hideous in and of myself. And so are you, you know. (laughs) But Christ is making us beautiful. So how can we be such a church marked by unity and health? How do you, again, going back to the center, how do we see real change? Not just conformity for a moment, but real change is to see the gospel. We can't go through the second half of this book without keeping the first half in view. The gospel is central. And I so need to hear this good news. We also desperately need to hear this good news. Everyone is vital. Everyone is vital. So skeptic, seeker, stumbling, or doubting saint, Will you believe this good news, that he's making us beautiful? And we all are vital. A follower of Jesus, who do you need to share this good news with? We pray. You're holy and majestic. You're above all, and yet you're with us. You are the Lord who is near. You are the Lord who has called us to yourself and then sent us to those who are far. Oh God, would you show us more of your worth, more of your beauty, and would you show us the ways in which you're making us beautiful. Let us be conscious of that, Father.